Uh, I'd like to thank the Angelicum, uh, the Rector Magnificus, Father Thomas Joseph White, who I think first probably got me involved in the Thomistic Institute uh, when he had not exper yet experienced his apotheosis. And now um, the, the uh, uh, capable hands of Father Simon Gain for uh, helping with this and sponsoring this and um, having me back. I'm always a little struck um, that they still have me back because perhaps at the end of my paper you'll wonder why do they keep having him back. So, um, And also the hard work of Father Davenport and my um, colleague Nick Tay. So uh, thank you very much. And I will start my timer, Father. Okay. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament, of the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the firmaments of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'd like to begin my talk today with the assertion that if true, the two passages I just read, one from the opening of Genesis and the other from the opening of the Gospel according to John, are literally true. However, at this point, many of you may be terrified by the consequent of my conditional, namely the claim that the passages I read are literally true, if true at all. And among the frightened, I would include many of my fellow Christians and fellow Catholics. Why? Well, because the passages I quoted, especially the first from Genesis that describes the fourth day of creation in the creation narrative, are commonly taken among sophisticated members of our culture to be paradigmatic instances of literal falsehoods. My co-religionists, fearing to look foolish in the sophisticated tea parties and suburban gardens of our culture, are likely to say that they are indeed true, but not literally true. They are true in some other sense, perhaps a spiritual sense. As Galileo famously quipped, Genesis does not tell us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. It's a neat little trick when confronted with what appears to be an absurdity, if taken to be true at face value, that is, understanding the terms employed in their plain, ordinary sense, the way any five-year-old would understand them, the believer moves to spiritualize the statement so that it comes out true no matter what. Spiritualizing the truth is like ad hoc modifications in scientific inquiry, whereby one preserves the truth of one's theory no matter what by modifying the theory in the face of countervailing evidence 
that would otherwise falsify it. This spiritualist move has a long history in the Christian church, dating at least as far back as the Gnostics in the first few centuries of the life of the church. But don't get me wrong. As a Catholic, I think there are spiritual truths within scripture. I just don't think they are the truths you get when fearful that a statement understood literally is absurd, you spiritualize it. In any case, confronted with my claim that if true, the opening passages of the book of Genesis and the Gospel of John are literally true, both my non-religious friends among you and my co-religionists are likely to think I am some sort of seven-day creation biblical fundamentalist. So before anyone grabs for their Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or what have you, I assure you I am not a seven-day creation biblical fundamentalist. I just think it's literally true that people often grab for their Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok when hearing a striking, even crazy, claim in order to send off an, an outrageous tweet or selfie or what have you, to display to the world the shock in their faces. Notice that my last sentence shares something in common with both the passage from Genesis and the Gospel of John. The sentence and the passages all use words that typically apply to physical objects and processes. Morning, evening, light, word, grab, shock, and even crazy. Taken at face value in their ordinary senses, as understood by a five-year-old, these words should lead, one of the, uh, lead the literalists among you to conclude that the statements that involve them are false, including the one about tweets, Instagrams, and TikToks. How can there be three days before there is a sun? As the Genesis passage suggests, the sun is created on the fourth day. How can there be a word with God in the beginning? And what could it possibly mean for a religious believer in Judaism, Christianity, or Islam to think there's a beginning associated with God, not the beginning of time associated with creation and Genesis, but a beginning before the beginning of time and characterizing God in some way? How can a word make its dwelling amongst us, much less a God? How can you grab Twitter or Instagram or TikTok? How can you send a tweet? For those interested in natural science, more obviously and obscurely, the use of the term shock in the statement above, meaning a feeling of astonishment or unpleasant surprise, traces its etymological lineage to the French, French shock, meaning the result of a collision or jolt of physical objects. But how can a face express shock in response to a meaningful claim, not a physical shock at the medium of the sound striking the ears, but a shock at the meaning incarnate in the sound that is the statement. Oops. Meaning that is incarnate, that is enfleshed in sound? How can that be? How can meaning be in the flesh of a sound, such that the flesh of the sound would strike the mind of the hearer with a jolt 
or consider crazy as describing my statement. The term crazy may come from the Swedish krasa, meaning to crackle, as in dash something to pieces. It may now ordinarily characterize a person's mental state, but its birth as a term seems to come from a jumble of broken pieces of a physical object. Does that remotely, oops, remotely imply that it is always literally false, but perhaps spiritually true, to say a statement is crazy? But how can an implication be remote? At face value, as a five-year-old might understand the terms, the use of all these terms suggests that you should say the statements involving them are all false. Oops, I did it again. Do words have a face value? Do they even have faces, much less valuable ones? Am I saying something spiritually true when I speak of the meaning of a term taken at face value? Faced or confronted, or, well, I'm just going to say it, struck by the uses of these terms in these sentences, many, if they are consistent, should say that the sentences are literally false. They will say you cannot literally tweet a message to someone. A god cannot literally pitch his tent, and you cannot be struck or shocked by a statement. However much you may have thought you were struck, and even shocked by my claim that if true, the statements in Genesis and the Gospel of John are literally true. Engaged in your research, you cannot be struck by an idea. You cannot be struck by the Caravaggios in San Luigi de Francese, unless someone manages to get them off the wall and hit you with them. So the literalists will say. Perhaps you can be shocked by the little electric machine that takes your coin to turn on the lights so you can see the Caravaggios. But that would be a shock in what many take the literal sense of shock to be, something produced by electricity. Not the sense of being shocked that you have to pay to turn on the lights to look at the Caravaggios. When you say you were struck by what I said, and shocked, shocked I say, by it, figuring that I'm a fundamentalist nut job, nut job, you yourself must be uttering a spiritual truth that is literally false. I say no to all of this. All of these statements I've been canvassing are literally true, if true at all. What they all share in common is the use of images and metaphors to assert truths about the way the world is, to describe the reality of the world, the substances and artifacts that make it up, along with all the states of affairs they enter into. And now I'm going to refer to two American football teams, for those of you who aren't American. The Green Bay Packers destroyed the Chicago Bears once again on Sunday. That is not a spiritual truth. Let, but let down by their abysmal efforts on the gridiron, the Bears, having been so utterly destroyed, like timid little puppy dogs got back on the bus with their tails between their legs for the long trek home to the windy city. So much spiritual depth, but literal falsehood in what I just said. After all, having been destroyed, how could the bears get back on the bus? No, 
That description is not expressing a spiritual truth, but a literal truth. We use images and metaphors expressed by words outside their ordinary plain sense in order to describe the world with a particular depth of meaning and truth missing from ordinary plain sense descriptions. Reading the stats of the game in the paper the next day will communicate something true to the reader, but it will also fail to communicate the fullness and depth of the truth of what happened. It's not that the images and metaphors communicate the very same thing as the stats, but in a particularly pleasing way to the reader who happens to be a Packer fan and a frustrating way to the Bears fan. No, they communicate more about the reality than can be communicated by the stat line alone. Or the simple statement, the Packers beat the Bears yesterday. Oh, sorry, that's too spiritual. Referring as it does to a beating, the Packers won the game over against alongside the Bears yesterday. That would be something like not using an image or a metaphor. But over, against. Even the use of outside in the phrase outside their ordinary use, when I said that we use words outside their ordinary use, is an image and a metaphor. The fact is that our life of describing reality, whether we do it truly or falsely, whether we are in ordinary conversation with our friends or in a physics lab with our students, is suffused with the use of images and metaphors to describe the reality we encounter. It is the dream of some philosophers to replace everything we might say about the world employing images and metaphors with alternative sentences that imply no, employ no such images and metaphors. To develop, that is, an image-less language for the language of truth. Still, in my philosophy classes, I often challenge my students if they think the use of an image or metaphor in speech leads to literal falsehood, to try to go a single day speaking about the world to friends and family without employing a single image or metaphor. Without, that is, speaking literal falsehood on their view. The fact that they and we cannot succeed in that effort gives one a bit of evidence for a first Thomistic principle about thought and truth. All human thought employs images. This is axiomatic for uh, Thomists. All human thought employs images. Don't think of the early modern way of ideas. It means something different from that. If you, don't think, if you think so, then you can read my book. My kids need new shoes. <laughs> Any language that would hope to truly express human thought will have to employ images and metaphors to do it. Now, although I'm approaching the topic of our conference in a very basic and perhaps indirect, off-kilter, oops, off-kilter way, we are here, of course, to discuss in part how images and metaphors may well play a part in the idealizations and models of scientific theories. To take a prime example from physics of an obviously spiritual truth, an oldie, but a goodie, electrons are both particles and waves. So much spiritual depth in that statement. Why? Well, we say so because the mathematical functions we use within our theories to represent and describe their behavior 
in different experimental settings, in other more ordinary settings, describe ordinary observable, observable particles on the one hand, or ordinary observable waves on the other. In one set of experimental circumstances, the sorts of functions we use are those we use to describe the large-scale projectiles with inertial mass subject to the conservation of momentum and energy and physical laws specifying the effects of various external forces acting upon them. A piece of chalk, for instance, thrown at a wall by a teacher, shattering and scattering in many pieces as it literally, not spiritually, strikes the wall. In other settings, the functions are the sorts of functions we use to describe and account for the way the two sides of the entrance to a harbor pier literally, not spiritually, lead to odd interference patterns in the ocean waves that enter it. Thus, we have mathematical models that, insofar as we want to give them a physical interpretation, require the use of images extended from ordinary physics. We could simply drop that effort at physical interpretation of the mathematical formalisms and adopt something more like an instrumentalist view of the functions of matrix algebra used in the Heisenberg formalism of quantum mechanics, for instance. But then, is it physics anymore? I think that question has been asked before. Somewhere in the mists, oops, somewhere in the mists of time. The use of the term literal to mean plain sense is of fairly recent coinage. Oops, you're going to be really irritated. <laughs> Should that be vintage, not coinage, to describe the beginning of the use of a word? I'm sorry. I just couldn't figure, oops, figure out which word would be better as I typed away in the still silent darkness of my flight my flight over the Atlantic. Some will date the use of literal to exclude image and metaphor to the influence of the Galileo affair in thinking about the language of science versus the language of scripture, particularly the language of Genesis. If true, that is a bit of historical irony given the use of visual images among the physical models in dispute between geocentrism and heliocentrism. You cannot ask of the complicated mathematic, mathematical formalism, whether algebraic or geometric, required to express the epicycles centered on the deference, whether the function or circle is real. But provided you've given the, the formalisms a physical interpretation, you can ask whether they represent a real path. That physical interpretation will uh, involve some form of model employing images. However, that model will not be an exact copy. Indeed, the idea of an exact copy might be incoherent. The only thing that could be an exact copy to the original is the original itself, and therefore not a copy. As Aquinas will claim about truth, to have a truth about something, the vehicle of truth, say a statement or a painting, must have something proper to itself, not found in the being about which it is true. Otherwise, it would just be the being and not about the being. And that insight, that the aboutness of truth requires something distinctive in and about the truth-teller in the act of telling the truth, 
introduces the thought that we make choices as to what is salient about the being we want to truly represent with our statements, images, and models, what we want to focus upon and emphasize, leaving other aspects of the being out of consideration. I'm trying to go forward, Father, but there we go. The painter wants to bring out in the painting the uncertainty and trepidation, but also the hope of Matthew being called by Christ, and so leaves out the cynicism of years of betraying his people for blood money in service to the Romans. Blood money laid out on the table before him, emphasizing certain facial features and expressions, and not others, but especially the tautness and inclination of Matthew's thighs under the table, as if on their own they are already getting up from the table before Matthew has consciously chosen to respond, yes, and is consciously still wondering, me? But look at his legs, they're already starting. But even before those artistic choices are made, the painter confronts the fact that the trepidation and hope that is expressed in three dimensions in his face must be represented in two dimensions on the canvas. But it wouldn't be a painting true to its subject if it weren't in two dimensions. And, so, and, and does that figure on the canvas in any way look at all like Matthew looked? And yet it is a true portrait of the call of Matthew. Even though we cannot possibly check it visually against the event that it represents. Or would you rather say it's a spiritual painting? Don't, or does it look spiritual to me? In the figures I know best, Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, literal did not mean ordinary or plain sense. The sort of sense of word you might expect a five-year-old to know. As described in Augustine's two different but related works on the literal interpretation of Genesis, a literal statement was a statement that in the intention of the speaker or author purported to state something about the world. Describe it. Make a claim about reality and the states of affairs that obtain in reality. A statement that could be judged to be true or false in relation to the reality it purports to describe. But it isn't true because of a simple likeness. One oak tree is like any other oak tree. But it isn't about the other or true of it. The artist plays with likeness in the unlikeness of the medium of the art to draw out the reality of what the artist wants to say about the reality. Similarly, in what we say in our statements about the world. However, it was crucial that in both Augustine and Aquinas, the literal sense of a statement need not exclude the use of image and metaphor. Indeed, Aquinas goes so far as to suggest that concerning some topics, some realities, the use of image and metaphor is necessary for making true statements not because they are simply useful or pleasing. In the cases they have in mind, they are better because less misleading than the effort to make corresponding statements without image and metaphor. Aquinas' example was in language about God. It is necessary in statements about God to make use of image and metaphor. Why? Well, on the one hand, we have to use language drawn from ordinary life. Because by and large, that is what language does. 
express our experience, knowledge, and at times understanding of ordinary life. It's the only language we have. That language is extended from ordinary use to describe the extraordinary in our still ordinary lives, as in bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, and my love is like a red, red rose. And I got up before the sunrise to wash and put away the dishes left over from last night's party. That's more like what I would say. Consider how much more is communicated by saying, I got up before the sun rose, than I got up at 5.42 a.m. Even if one considers the latter for some odd reason to be a more exact statement and representation of the facts, ma'am, just the facts, what is the background for considering it more exact than the former? However, the Packers destroyed the Bears on Sunday is, in fact, more exact than the score of the Packers' Bear game on Sunday was 42 to 7. If we must use image and metaphor to communicate more truth about ordinary life than can be communicated without them, how much more so than must language be extended, even distended, with image and metaphor beyond ordinary use to discuss the extraordinary reality of God? Aquinas' thought that it is that if you were to substitute a statement employing no image or metaphor in place of a statement that employs them to speak of God, it's not that it would be more exact and thus truer to the reality, but that it would likely be false where the original is true. It is precisely because the ordinary reality that confronts us in our quotidian lives is finite in its intelligibility that we can give expression to it within the limits of our ordinary language. As Aquinas says, we name as we know. And the limits of our language give expression to the limits of the things we know. Aquinas's point about image and metaphor, however, is that given the finite intelligibility of ordinary things, given true expression within ordinary language, but also the fact that it is the only language we have, already filled with images and metaphors, we can only speak truly of the extraordinary in the case of God by the extension of that language with the resources it has. And the best way to do that is through the extension of the images and metaphors. To attempt to speak of God without image and metaphor would, he argues, lead inevitably into error about God. But why all this talk about God? Despite being here in the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, we are not here to talk about God. We are here in Rome to talk about scientific theory, modeling, and idealization. Well, the point about extending language from the ordinary to the extraordinary holds as much of scientific theorizing as it does of the language we employ to speak of God. I already made a stab, made a stab at making that point when mentioning the Galileo affair. But this point is particularly true when we consider the more exotic reaches of contemporary science that attempt to approach the most fundamental physical limits of the world around us and its physical principles. Geology and plate tectonics are one species of extraordinary modeling in the realm of science, modeling that employs images and metaphors 
to give a physical interpretation to the formalisms of the science. But relatively speaking, it seems to be a rather mundane, a rather mundane extension of ordinary language compared, as we all know, to the inner reaches of the atom and the outer reaches of the cosmos. I don't want to give the impression, oops, that what I am arguing about here is a merely verbal dispute about the term literal, as between the pre-modern use of it and the modern use of it. I'm perfectly happy to dispense with the term literal altogether. What I'm concerned with is arguing on behalf of ineliminable images and metaphors in the expression of truth that purports to manifest and communicate our understanding of the way the world is. So I'm perfectly happy to leave the term literal on the table with the moderns. What I'm not willing to leave to them is the thought that there is some ideal expression of truth about the world that dispenses with images and metaphors, whether in ordinary discourse or the most abstruse reaches of contemporary science. In the descriptive use of language about the world, in which I would include scientific modeling, there's no pure language or form of representation that arrives at truth shorn of image and metaphor. Did it again. Truth shorn of image and metaphor. Would stripped be better there? By the way, if you're tempted by what you take to be the more exact and less imagistic term eliminate, as in language that eliminates image and metaphor to arrive at truth, eliminate comes from the Latin eliminare, which means to turn something out of doors. In any case, I'm tempted to say the modern sense of literal as excluding image and metaphor can be employed if we restrict it to the ways we think a five-year-old understands and employs words. But no one would think that the only truths that are enunciated about the world are those that can be enunciated by a five-year-old. However, I say tempted because that isn't giving enough credit to the five-year-olds who use image and metaphor all the time to speak of the world. I see no reason for thinking there is or ever could be a stage of true human language that is purified of image and metaphor, nor should it be. Or a stage, uh, sorry, or a stale, complete, comprehensive, and exact lacking image and metaphor as the one true final theory, as in Laplace's hallucination. So you can have your term literal, denuded, denuded of image and metaphor, so long as you grant me that we are able to make true descriptive claims about the world and construct true models of it. Descriptions that use image and metaphor to communicate that truth use image and metaphor in ineliminable ways the use of images and metaphors in ways that cannot be turned out of doors. Before proceeding to the very brief sketch of a Thomistic account, and we'll see if I get there, of truth that can make sense of our use of images and metaphors, I'd like first to consider a picture of truth that I think misleads us into thinking the goal of arriving at truth involves using language that does not depart from grasping truths. On a common philosophical view, truth is a property of propositions, conceived of as abstracta. Whatever ontology one might want to attribute to such, such abstracta, one reason for considering truths to be abstracta is the thought that truths, if true, ought to be true objectively, 
and independently of speakers and those, who, those with the so-called mental attitudes of belief, doubt, assent, and the like, directed at truth or the mental states of knowledge and understanding of such truths. You doubt that God exists, while well, I believe he does. You do not assent when the church proposes to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, I do. You know that I am a fool. Well, of course, I understand that you think I'm a fool. It's the content of the that clauses in our sentences that many contemporary philosophers think effectively name the relevant objective abstracta as objects to be pondered, believed, doubted, or understood abstracta that are true or false, independently, independently of all these attitudes, indeed true or false independently of human intellects or any intellects at all. Armed with these abstracta as the objects of our mental attitudes and states, we can ask how it is that our sentences, particularly our statements, can hook up, hook up to these abstracta. One way of doing that would be to say that the meaning of a statement is a function that maps a sentence onto a proposition. Notice, by the way, our tendency always to adopt mathematical images and metaphors for all things, even when those things aren't quantities as such. Yes, I think even mathematical representation can be an image and a metaphor. Now, on this way of thinking, one can almost immediately rule out that the mapping function is identity. That is, that the sentence just is the proposition. One can rule it out because another virtue of such abstracta is that they seem to be able to undergird the common meaning of sentences expressed in different languages. For example, that tree is green, and calarbaro e verde. On that account, the English sentence and the Italian sentence murdered as I just did it, murdered, are mapped respectively to the same abstract proposition, which proposition may or may not be true. So the abstracta can't be related to the sentences by identity. And this gives even more reason to think of them as abstracta, since sentences are paradigmatically concreta when expressed. But they, are not, but they are thought to express the same thing, the same proposition. Now, if the proposition the sentence maps onto happens to be true, then the sentences as statements can be said to be true in a secondary, derivative sense. But you can also see the beginning of a temptation to sin. If two sentences in two different languages can mean the same thing, express the same proposition, couldn't it be the case that for any statement in a particular language that employs an image or metaphor giving expression to a proposition, there's another statement in that very same language employing no images or metaphors, but that expresses the very same proposition? And shouldn't we opt for the latter one as more exact, translating, as it were, not between languages, but rather within a single language in a quest for exactitude that has shown image and metaphor the door. It's difficult, if not impossible, to think of how the proposition itself as an abstractum could involve images and metaphors, since images and metaphors seem to be subjective aspects of speakers' intentions and choices in speaking. 
So if the proposition is in being true does not employ images to be true, mustn't our non-metaphorical statements, unvarnished, unvarnished by images and metaphors and other such bric-a-brac, be more exact in mapping onto those propositions, more likely, that is, to hit the target true proposition. There we can see the temptation, see the temptation to think that to be exact in the truths we enunciate, we should eliminate image and metaphor, since A, it seems on this picture of truth that we can, in theory, eliminate them by finding the right translation statement scrubbed clean of image and metaphor to substitute for the metaphorical statement. And B, the propositions themselves of their very nature do not traffic in, have no place for image and metaphor. It's a practical imperative. Propositions being free of image and metaphor, the statements we use to express them ought also to be free of image and metaphor. An image or metaphor plays with the ordinary meaning of a term pushes it off its center, and a statement within which it is found seems to be off-kilter in its function of taking us to a proposition. With apologies to Shakespeare, I can see the bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Do birds sing? Or do they tweet and chirp? Do they chirp in choirs? Or do they chirp in flocks? Why you sang when you could use chirp? Why use choir when you could use flock? All the images in the statement, however pleasing to the ear they might be, seem to derail, derail the meaning function that directs us to the propositions that ought to be expressed, pushing the functions off, off their target, preventing them from hitting, hitting the propositions straight and true. Wouldn't it just be better to state, I can see the empty winter tree branches where the flock of birds used to chirp? Apparently lacking image and metaphor, wouldn't that take us more directly to the proposition to be evaluated as true or false? But is the proposition that the author intends to take us to actually the one expressed by that naked statement and its meaning function? How could we possibly know, since it seems we don't have direct access to naked propositions as abstracta. We are taken to them by the sentences we utter. But might the proposition we are taken to be closer to the non-metaphorical statement, I can see the burned out choir stalls of the monasteries where once the monks sang morning and evening prayer before Henry confiscated their property, expelled the monks, and left the monasteries to ruin. To disambiguate between the two propositions, it seems we would have to know an awful lot more about the context in which the images and metaphors are expressed in the sonnet. Once again, bringing in elements of human subjectivity into questions of objective descriptive truth. But no, on this view of truth, it's just simpler to treat the statements in isolation, to strip them of images and metaphors and see what we get or better to translate them into different statements lacking image and metaphor to get at the plain, plain, unvarnished, unvarnished truth. Provided, of course, that the author doesn't intend to express two or more truths with the one statement. In any case, best to strip the statements of image and metaphor 
so that they can go about their job representing truth more accurately and straightforwardly. Straightforwardly. Leaving us with bare ruined sonnets where late the sweet bard sang. I don't get a laugh on that one. <laughs> so I'm definitely not going to get through this. Let me check my watch, Father. Okay, five and a half minutes, to be exact. One final aspect of this way of looking at true statements as taking us by their meaning to true propositions is that on the most popular view, the true propositions are taken to represent reality by a kind of correspondence. However, it can be difficult to specify just what it is about propositions that corresponds to just what in reality. One thing we know already, the correspondence cannot involve images. Images and metaphors are images and metaphors from and to or for someone. Expressions of the speaker's subjectivity in speaking and the listeners in listening. The propositions that are the proper instantiations of the properties true and false are abstracta, cleansed of the subjective. That's why we want to get rid of the images and metaphors in our statements, since they don't seem to reflect the purity of the abstracta we mean by them. Propositions are truths from no one and for no one. On the simplest view of correspondence, there would be a kind of isomorphism between objects in the world and their properties, the conglomeration of which is called a fact on the one hand and different bits of a proposition on the other, whatever it would mean to be a bit of a proposition. Part doesn't seem to be a particular improvement over bits if you are tempted to say parts of the proposition, given that propositions are supposed to be abstracta. Attributing parts to a proposition as an abstractum because the facts are supposed to have parts would seem to be begging the question in favor of the correspondence theory. In effect, defining it to be true, to, uh, to be a true theory of truth. In any case, the isomorphism theory so described is something like the neoclassical view of truth as correspondence. And of course, it is no mean irony that it borrows the notion, dare I say image, of isomorphism from the abstract field of set theory. In any case, to take an example, the abstract parts of the proposition Giotto is painting are mapped isomorphically to a complex worldly fact constituted by the object Giotto and the property being engaged in the act of painting. But here, in addition to specifying just what these mysterious parts of a proposition as abstract it could possibly be, another problem starts to arise with the view of propositions and truth. True of is an asymmetric relation. A proposition is true of some fact in the world. But the fact in the world that the proposition is true of is not generally true of the proposition. The proposition Giotto is painting is true of Giotto painting. While Giotto painting is not true of the proposition. However, recalling that the notion of isomorphism is borrowed from set theory, for every isomorphism, there must be an inverse isomorphism. We know that inverse isomorphism cannot just be identity for the same reason the original isomorphism couldn't be. But also, that inverse isomorphism can't be the truth function, since, as we've said, Giotto painting is not generally true of the proposition that Giotto is painting. 
indeed cannot be true of it. So the correspondence account fails to account for what the character of truth is that distinguishes the first isomorphism, the truth function, from its inverse isomorphism, which is not a truth function. Thus, no actual account of truth as isomorphic correspondence has actually been given. And if anybody ever says, I don't make arguments, that was an argument. <laughs> I just didn't number the propositions. Finally, there's the problem of the normativity of truth, the thought that a truth is as it ought to be, as contrasted with a falsehood. And secondarily, that we ought to prefer truth to falsehood. On the account of truth that we are contemplating here, it is difficult to see how truth comes out as normative. And again, this reflects the failure to be able to give an account of what characterizes some isomorphisms as the truth involving ones and others not. No doubt we can set up abstract isomorphism between the parts of oak trees and the parts of elm trees. But oaks will never be true of elms and elms never true of oaks nor should they be. But a proposition isomorphically related to oak trees is supposed to be true of it. It needs to be related to it in the right way at the cost of otherwise being false. The proposition is as it should be in being true, so we want to say. But how can an isomorphic correspondence of parts to parts be the basis of truth as it ought to be? and such that we should look to pick out those propositions with that isomorphism from those without it. Take Giotto is painting again. Supposing that to be false, then Giotto is not painting is true. The only difference between the two propositions expressed is the negation. But what abstract part of a proposition is a negation? And insofar as it is true that Giotto is not painting, Insofar as it is true that Giotto is not painting, what part of the fact is it isomorphic to? Not the fact of Giotto painting, that's for sure. What exactly is the negation not, as a propositional part, isomorphic to in reality? Since its role in the proposition seems to prevent the proposition in being true from being isomorphic to the fact of Giotto painting but rather isomorphic to some other rather odd fact. Where can we possibly find the naughtiness in a fact that otherwise, without that naughtiness as a part, would be Giotto painting? Let me paint an alternative. First, there are no propositions as abstract. Propositions are things we human beings do. In their simplest forms, they are judgments, whereby something is affirmed of something else or denied of it. Aquinas most often calls them enunciables, recognizing thereby that sometimes we do not state what we think to be true, but could state them should we choose to do so. While the primary sense of a proposition would involve statement, propositions can be made to function as questions, as commands, as expressions of anger or joy, like, oh, sweet bird of youth, at, at last I've found you. The key is that, is that propositions are things we do, but they give expression to the judgments of the mind about the world. They give expression to a distinctively human way of experiencing the world through intellect and reason, presupposing more fundamental bodily ways in which human beings as animals 
engage the world. It is because the materials out of which enunciables are made are developed by the intellect from the way we as human beings engage the world through our bodies that we cannot think about the world without images, indeed metaphors, that extend the ways in which we think about the world from one area of discourse to another. And I'm just going to skip to the last paragraph because Father Davenport, who's larger than I am, has indicated the time has run out. Um, but the, the seven or eight pages I have left um, essentially argue that, um, or I try to make the argument that um, the, the view that propositions are statements, um, things that we do, addresses the problems that I brought up with the isomorphic theory. Um, it addresses the problem of the asymmetry of truth, because we, in fact, do that. Oaks do not assert. It's not just the correspondence of the parts of a sentence to the thing. That would be no better than anything else. Um, it's that the, we make a judgment. And that's what Thomas says is where truth is found as distinctive. That point about has to have something distinctive. Truth is first found in the judgment, not the concatenation of a subject and a predicate, but the human judgment. Okay? So um, I'll read two things. And also that it account for normativity. And I just like this end of a paragraph, so I'm going to read it. Our is, being human, implies an ought, being true. I will be true to you no matter what comes. The mother in Terence Malick's extraordinary film, The Tree of Life, says at the beginning of the film, truth is something we do and achieve as part of our success as human beings, as part of what it is to be good human beings. I will be true to you no matter what comes. Falsehood is something we fail to do, either through ignorance or choice. It is for the losers in human life. Aquinas goes so far as to say that in being true to the world, we become it, and we complete the world because it rises to the level of understanding within us. And finally, um, true judgments give expression to what we have come to know about the world in the various limited ways we engage the world as bodily beings, living in the world. But there's no reason why what we affirm or deny of some being in the world cannot be expressed with an image or metaphor, particularly if we, as the makers of true judgments, judge that this is the best way to express what we have come to understand about the world. If we consider the image or metaphor, that from which it gets its meaning is some ordinary experience of the world, but as an image or meta metaphor, that to which it is applied is something different from the ordinary. It is put to work by us to further comprehend the more extraordinary features of the world, and in Aquinas's case, the God who made it. We do this because of some similarity of the extraordinary to the ordinary. And knowledgeably doing so, we utter a truth we could not otherwise utter. Far from obscuring the truth from us about the world, knowingly and skillfully employing image and metaphor in our inquiry shows the depth of our true understanding of the world. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. Thank you.